Hey, this is Rob Callen, and I'm a misfit. Why? The traditional business environment has always seemed off to me. It's really hard to get things done. People are busy protecting themselves. Crucial information resides in hard-to-reach places. And leaders seem exhausted, frazzled, and distracted. And those are on the good days. As a result, creative ideas fizzle, enthusiasm drops, and eventually people see work as a mere transaction at best. And yet, we often accept this environment as normal. That never sat well with me. Well, guess what? There's a better way to live. This is where Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen enter the picture. I met these guys after I lost a job, and as I heard more about the leadership development work they've been collaborating on together, I knew that not only had they discovered some incredible principles, but that like me, they felt like misfits too. On this show, which we're calling the Lead with a Question podcast, we're setting out to learn from other misfits who've discovered that leadership doesn't mean having all the answers. On each episode, we'll delve into guiding principles and questions that have led these creators to achieve miraculous things, whether you've heard of them or not. We plan to stay hungry, stay foolish, and explore new ways to lead and create together. Stick around. All right. Well, I'm super excited to get the chance to connect with the both of you. Um, we have Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen to join um, in this conversation today. My name is Rob Callen. And in this show, we are going to be delving into a lot of different areas. And in order for us to set the context for that, we wanted to have an initial conversation with Ian and Chris, who will also be co-hosts during this journey, so that they can explain a little bit more about their stories. And I'm very curious to learn more as well. And so I wanted to jump in and just start by asking, and maybe I'll start with you, Ian, what is some of the motivation of the work that you've been um, delving into over the last few years? And can you lay some context for us as we think about how we can be approaching this? Great, Rob. Well, yeah, I think that a lot of what we're seeing today in, in a career-oriented pathway and in the workplace is, you know, a lot of disgruntled people, a lot of existentialism, so to speak. You know, the pandemic, if that's taught us anything, um, we, we had a chance to press pause, to break away from our traditions and the application of work um, in a remote way. And as people are trying to return and try to reconfigure how that looks, you know, it, it poses a lot of questions. Do we need to return to what existed before? You know, it, perhaps we're seeing it from different angles now, but what's glaring to, to us and in this work is the fact that there are a lot of problems with the traditional setup of an employee and employer model, you know, stemming back from the industrial revolution, you know, when the nine to five was born, 
right? When we were measured by the output of the time that we spend working, you know, as laborers, um, you know, a lot of uh, the, the, the traditional playbook was established back then. And so there's a lot of outdated practices now that I think a lot of folks are calling, calling out or questioning. Mm-hmm. Now, surely there are a lot of positives um, related to that, that framework as well. I mean, could you help us understand maybe what some of the problems were that, 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 you know, older um, model we're, we're trying to solve and maybe what, what some of those benefits may still be here today? Yeah. I mean, I think this push for efficiency is, is definitely a positive output, right? It's, it's how can we simplify our systems? How can we, you know, get good at our processes as we approach the work we do? You know, the dangers, however, are, you know, when we focus too much on extrapolating these type of efficiency outcomes, you know, some organizations, some companies tend to lose their soul, you know, along the process, you know, it's like results driven, um, you know, what, what does the data tell us? It's, um, it can be taken to an extreme on both sides. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting, the, the, the ties, the origins with that approach to business and life being tied to the industrial revolution, um, where, you know, a, a, a very deep focus on physical machines, right? Coal mining or, uh, iron smelting, et cetera. And it seems that in some cases it's possible to view the employee almost as, as a piece within the machine rather than an autonomously functioning thinking person. I want to give each of you a chance to kind of lay the groundwork of, of what got you interested in this work in the first place. And um, in some of the information that you've captured and, and provided, um, you, you've talked about this concept of, of T1, T2 organizations. Can you help me understand what, uh, what the background on that is? Yeah, I'll jump in. I mean, I, I just real quick, uh, I think all of us have had experiences with, uh, a T1, uh, boss, right? Somebody like that, just, it was a struggle, right? And we, uh, so I, I had that experience multiple times. And, you know, feeling micromanaged, you know, I had a, a boss who literally, I was working on a deadline and I'm at the computer, I'm doing everything I can, comes up standing behind me and he's like, hey, so what if I had a gun pulled to your head right now? I'm like, well, I, I would probably just be working just as fast as I, I am right now, right? Like I wouldn't change, I mean, I'd, I'd still be, you know, and I'm thinking like, what is this guy? So then, and then he says, as he, as he walks out the door that's virtually the situation. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, I mean, I think we've all had crazy boss experiences, right. And things where you question like, what is, what is all this? Right. Mm-hmm. And why? And for me, that led to uh, a lot of, actually it was, it was part like a, just a rejection of that, right. It was a rejection of, Hey, I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. You know? And if, if that's what success looks like, then, you know, what if there's a different definition of success? And what if I redefine what that is? But what would that be, mm-hmm. right? And then the second question to that, if we talk about T2, where it's an amplification of self, right, or pursuit of an entrepreneurial approach, which, you know, I, 
I think we, you know, we, I, I tried that. I was like, Hey, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do these things. And I got to a point, I had a book publisher, I had all these things set up and, you know, a deal. And I realized like, Hey, this feels pretty empty though. Mm-hmm. I'm just optimizing one thing like everybody else. Right. And I'm just eager to tell my story to self promote. Mm-hmm. And what does this all mean? Right. And so that created a pause for me to say, wait, maybe there's something bigger here at play. And, and what if, what if there's a different answer that the world needs that I need? Right. Uh, it's not just, again, work harder, work smarter. You know, uh, what if it's work creatively together? And how do you manifest that? Mm-hmm. So that those were questions that I started to, uh, you know, started started to wrestle mm-hmm. with, right? I think people, again, it's like, hey, they feel disenfranchised by what's out there, and then they try it, and it doesn't work, right? It doesn't give it doesn't give them the fulfillment that it promised, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it sounds like you've had some um, some challenging experiences. I think probably as most of us have in our careers, where you know, a, a boss, a team, etc where there wasn't really a lot of room for kind of autonomy or feeling like you were even seen as, as a human. Um, that's, that's kind of T1 is what I'm hearing. And then T2 is sort of the reaction to that. It's more entrepreneurial um, and, and you're trying to kind of break those chains. Ian, has that been a theme in, in your own life and career as well? Yeah, it has. I think, you know, I've always had this creative side to, to myself, um, things that I'm passionate about, um, maybe creative expressions that I've, I've tried to have outlets with. Um, and it's always been in conflict with, you know, the type of jobs that I have, the roles that I have. And I've always tried to have a great outlook, meaning like, I'm not going to let, you know, the way others show up at work or don't show up at work, or how they lead or how they manage things or people. I'm not going to let that affect me, but it's, I think the magic is when you can find those creative moments in working with others. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, people in in leadership, it's uh, the word manager or management kind of rubs me wrong because usually it's a controller. It's someone that controls resources, commodities, you know, um, they control a process, right? They're, they have to monitor. They're responsible for things. And that doesn't translate in leadership. I, I view the term manager and leader as two separate mm-hmm. things. Leadership is is being responsible for others, for, for people, right? And so it's taking into account a, a bad day someone might have, you know, a mood swing or just, um, you know, is there... Um, a shared time in a meeting with somebody like are you allowing them to express their ideas right uh whereas management it's you know you feel boxed in and that's what has always been the conflict for for my career path is that feeling of being boxed in or trying to be boxed in um and i just similar to what chris just said you know i always try to buck that trend and and i i don't want to be boxed in yeah, just add one thing too to that, like it, the performance obsession where it's like, hey, it's this, it's this, it's this. One funny anecdote too about like, I had a manager who was like obsessed with that, right? We go to lunch, I'm at a big job, I, I'm getting paid, you know, it's pretty good money. This is my first big job. And, you know, there's a few of us just out of the MBA, like got our masters, we're sitting down and she's like, okay, cool. Like, you know, we're at Chili's, right? Okay, you know, getting lunch. So, 
we come to the end of the lunch. She pulls out her car, pays for me, right? It's like 10 bucks or $15, whatever. I was like, oh, hey, thanks. You know, thank you. And she goes, it better be a good year. You better have a good year. <laughs> I was like, are you serious? How, how motivating, right? <laughs> yeah. So what? Right? Like, so my, my year is worth 15 bucks and it better be good or else that lunch wasn't worth it. Right. Mm-hmm. But these are the kinds of things that leaders man- or managers really have done over the years. And people are done with it. Mm-hmm. Right. They're exhausted. And to Ian's point, it's not leadership. Right. And it's clear and it's not building culture. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, and it makes people feel totally isolated yeah, and frustrated totally. and sick of it. Right. And no wonder they're done. Right. They're leaving jobs and they're saying, I don't have to do this anymore. And by the way, the market, you know, is open for business. Like I'm going to get I can get something else better elsewhere. Right. Yeah, totally. Well, and even if you haven't had the experience of working with a difficult boss, um, everyone knows someone who has. And even that style of leadership, if if you haven't encountered it, it, it personally, it still creates a specter that sort of pervades the business landscape. Like, oh, if you don't do what the company requires you to do, then there will be dire consequences. And it's you know irrelevant if the work that you're doing feels well suited to to what you you want to do. Um, your role is not to sort of explore those boundaries of your role. Your your job is to do what the company requires you to do or else essentially. And so that's what's, you know, leading a lot of the, the reactionary uh, entrepreneurship um, that, that we're seeing. And I've certainly had experiences where, um, you know, I didn't feel like I was cut out of the same mold as everyone else. Um, we were talking, you know, before we started today about, you know, going through my MBA program um, I would sometimes wonder, did did the admissions committee make uh, a mistake when they let me in? Um, because I didn't feel like I was uh, motivated by many of the same things that that peers in the program were. And I don't know if that's an outgrowth of just the business kind of landscape or if it's more specific to me, but a lot of the things that the two of you are saying have have just really been resonating with me. Uh, in terms of feeling like at times, you know, I didn't fit in with with my surroundings. Um, so with with that kind of as a as as background and and hopefully, you know, uh, for for people that are listening, if that maybe describes what you have experienced in your life, then then hopefully we can get to to a place uh, that inspires a lot more energy and and hope. Um, because the work that the two of you have started is, is nothing short of, of thrilling for me. So I want to get into, um, how, how did this concept of brave core begin? And even further back than that, how did the two of you meet? Right. So our, our sons actually met in school and, uh, they would play basketball in the same gym, uh, the same league together. So there were moments where Chris and I kind of interacted there. Uh, our boys started to get together, um, after school and we would just hang out and talk and that's how it started. And we, we identified early on that we both have this creative side to ourselves, um, that perhaps is a little bit more dormant, 
uh, in our regular daily life than we'd like to admit. Um, and, and then we we also have this fascination with leadership principles. Uh, we connected on that front as well. Stephen Covey, I just got uh, done with Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. And so there was this synergy around these ideas. And to Chris's point, we, we had just, um, I think, connected based on co-creating together. We started to shape ideas and we didn't know what it was, but there's energy behind it. And as we talked and zoomed out and talked more about our, our professional lives, um, we would kind of coach each other, right? You know, Chris had this uh, charter to, to help with uh, culture work over at Apple in an HR capacity. I was in healthcare at the time as an administrator and I worked with teams of people and there was always culture challenges and, and, you know, how, how do you motivate uh, a team of people during a pandemic? Right. So there was a lot of things that we um, kind of worked through together over the course of, of a few years, but these ideas started to, to take shape and we're like, what, what is this? You know, what is this notion of co-creation? Right. We were drawn to, this idea from Ed Catmull's work about brain trust. And Chris, if you want to kind of dive in there and kind of talk about how, you know, kind of your past experience at Disney, you started to experiment with this brain trust idea. Yeah. Uh, I guess going back to, you know, yeah, the brain trust, we essentially create our own brain trust. Um, when I was at Disney, uh, you know, I read Creativity when I was there. Uh, we had just acquired Pixar and I was working with businesses that were more traditional, right? As far as, and, and, you know, parks and resorts, business, interactive sourcing, uh, you know, a lot of these, these businesses that had been around for a while at Disney and the challenge for them was, you know, how do we innovate at the next level? How do we do things more like, you know, Pixar, right. Or, or Apple. And, uh, and it, the the principles were all, were all right there, right? So if you look at Creativity Inc., these principles of brain trust and how they do this, high transparency, you know, quality is the best business plan. Uh, it's all about um, you know partnership and collaboration, and working together. Um, best ideas win. All of those fundamentals we brought and infused those into the culture uh, in these product development spaces and merchandise, you know, food and beverage, like sourcing interactive and these it, it was a com- I say complete flip but it was definitely a, a shift uh the imagineering teams as well and and what what started to happen was they started to embrace those principles so what happened with uh ed you know and, and team bringing these things to disney studios uh he became the head of disney studios along with being the head of pixar uh, we start that those same principles were you know, being infused in these businesses and it became a difference of like three to four X growth in those businesses um, as far as, you know, financials. But it was also the fact that, Hey, this just works. Right. And people are ha- like, people enjoy working together where the best ideas are bubbling up. Amazing things are starting to emerge. We also had a convergence of, you know, uh, the purchase of Lucasfilm, Marvel, and these things were also influenced by, uh, you know, by that mindset. And it was just a powerful thing where you realized like, Hey, this just, it just works. And it's not about hierarchy. It's not about rank, you know, titles basically off the table, which basically is, Hey, it's not T1. Uh, and it's not T2 either because, um, 
you're not out for yourself. Well, let's, let's break that down because it, let's, let's consider the way meetings are conducted in a T1 setting, employer, employee, the typical traditional way, mm-hmm. right? It's usually, you know, the top hierarchy of an organization decides on something via committee, right? They usually outsource something. They defer responsibility. Let's have these consultants tell us what to do. Then they say, okay, let's try out this package. And then they hold a meeting and they tell everyone, hey, let's introduce this consultant, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's what we're rolling out. So we just really want you guys to embrace this. And if you have any questions, we can turn to these folks. Every employee in those meetings are just checked out, right? They're, it's a download session. The organization is like, you must download the next steps of what we're doing moving forward. And it just sucks the energy out of the room. What Chris just described is the exact opposite. You know, it's this notion of a brain trust meeting that we've learned from Ed Ed Catwell, right? And so it's more of an upload session. It's, hey, can we lead with a question, you know, as a leader? And and we learned this from Ed. You know, he said uh, the way that they would conduct meetings, he would send out, you know, a question, maybe a challenge that the organization was facing at the moment. But he'd send it out days prior to an actual brain trust meeting, let people kind of sort through things on their own, you know, uh, glean into their own insights Mm -hmm. and they'll come prepared to a meeting and it's an upload session, Mm -hmm. right? It's this convergence of creative energy, right? So converting this energy into an empathic kind of energy that is explorative, right? And you're building something that didn't exist before. Meetings are no longer download sessions. They're no longer agenda uh, checklisting. They are seeking for revelation together to build something that did not exist before, say, walking into that room or entering the Zoom room, right? Where something emerges and you say, wow. And this was a conversation I didn't anticipate. And we've had that, right? But, and we talk about being in the zone, right? On a create a creative you know, personal sense, right? People that have, that are artists, they feel this, or if you're in sports or whatever you love, right? But how often do you feel like you're in the zone in a conversation, in a meeting at work? And what if, here's a what if, what if you could do that? What if that was possible all the time? Now imagine a world like that, right? Where it is co-creative energy flowing and it's fluid and it's happening everywhere, And then what we could build. So if that team that does this magic, right, with with iPhones on every iteration of iPhone, it gives us, you know, these cameras that do these ridiculously amazing things. If they can do that with that principle, what could you do with your life and with your team, with your family, right? Your kids, like what's possible? Anything really. Yeah. Yeah. And it brings to mind, as you were talking, the the principle of flow from Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, who talks about the intersection between activities that require, you know, great skill. And then on the other axis is the skill of the individual. And it's fairly easy for us to achieve those moments individually because we can kind of control those those levers. We can opt into certain activities. Yeah. Um, much harder for entire teams to experience that state where the skills of the team and the challenge of the task are, 
you know, aligned with each other really well. Yeah. Something we discovered, um, Mary, Mary Parker Follett, uh, she was writing about this stuff in the 1800s and she has influenced leadership, you know, for really decades, right. Even as, you know, over this past century, uh, really and beyond. <laughs> um, and if you read her quotes, it is all about co-creation. It's all about how co-creation is leadership. There's this invisible force of creation uh, that we just need to unleash. And it's already inherent in people. And it's not about control. It's not about domination. It's about bringing people together and, and, and un- un- unleashing uh, kind of their voice, right? And in cl- collaborative, uh, co-creative ways that brings them you know, together at one. I actually have I actually have a couple of quotes I can spit out. Uh, now, mind you, this is like mid to late 1800s, right? Uh, tip of the 19th century here. It says, um, leadership is not defined by the exercise of power, but by the capacity to increase this sense of power among those led. The most essential work of, of the leader is to create more leaders. Unity, not uniformity, must be our aim. We attain unity only through variety. Differences must be integrated, not annihilated, not absorbed. I just love the way that that she framed things, and it was she was like from the future back yeah. then. I don't think people knew how to wrestle with her. Plus, she was a woman at the time where women's rights weren't you know on the forefront of where they are today. Um, we should never allow ourselves to be bullied by an either or. There's often the possibility of something better than either of these two alternatives. Hmm. I mean, it's it's just it's just amazing how she saw the world back then and and leadership, right? Give your difference, welcome my difference, unify all difference in the larger whole. Such is the law of growth. The unifying of difference is the eternal process of life the creative synthesis, the highest act of creation at one mint. Amazing to me. So powerful. Yeah. So good. Mm. Yeah. She literally got off the DeLorean, uh, from, you know, what 30, well, like a hundred years in the future right. shows up in the 1800s, starts teaching this stuff. She's influencing organizations. She becomes a, a consultant for uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Right. And most people like have never heard her name. This is a hidden story. Mm. Yeah, and there are so many gems uh, that she, you know, uh, quotes and and ideas, papers that she wrote. Um, so you know, this is way ahead of its time, and so she was living that T three experience even at that time. Um, and you know, some leaders have embraced this over the years. It pops up, or we'd see, you know, uh, where they would they would just get it. But largely, right, you have this kind of mindset that again was more of the information age, knowledge worker effectiveness focus, right? So even Peter Drucker, who's father of management, it was very much about effectiveness, right? The effective leader. So it was like, let's squeeze all the effectiveness out. Let's optimize, you know, that. And, uh, you know, and and as much as we love Covey, you know, that was the focus too, about being an effective manager, effective leader, but there wasn't as much of a focus as a starting point with co-creation. And, and it is as simple as she said, right? It's, it's working different together and there's power in that, right? That, that's a fundamental shift, mm. right? Because an effective leader, an effective manager is, is, has been historically 
hey, somebody who's got to have the answers, right? And then they end up being surprised all the time or frustrated or, or frankly, faking it, right? We talk about imposter syndrome. Well, that's pretty self-inflicted in some cases, right? For a lot of management because the assumption being, hey, I've, I got to know. And guess what? In a world where everybody's remote now and on Zoom and doing their thing and, and trying to create, well, you're, ne- you're, you're never going to get to a place where you have all the answers. So let's just stop pretending. Why do you think, Ian, that it's so challenging for most organizations to create the conditions that will that will foster an environment of co-creation? I, I think that most organizations are afraid of change, right? So the status quo is in large part there. Many leaders protect the status quo because it's what they're familiar with. When this drive to extract data from from reports, financial reports, it's always a look back in the past. And I think uh, after life and work experience happens, it's the only thing we can assess, right, to a large degree. The unknown uh, and creating something different is a scary thought. Yeah, there's like this defensive posture, right? that people put up and it's, it's ties to like vertical thinking. Right. And, and again, we've gotten very good at vertical thinking over the course of civilization, not just business culture. Right. We're very good at like, Hey, we, we can think vertical, but horizontal thinking and how we, we partner with people. Uh, and you know, yeah, bureaucracy just makes it worse. Right. It's like, well, you know, I, I've got to control this system. Uh, and to Ian's point, you know, this defensive posture that we take, that posture, that sense of fear is such a waste of energy, right? It's such a waste of resources. I mean, if we could, if we could add that up across every business and every company, you know, that T1 energy depletion, uh, it, that's like billions and trillions of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Wasted in, in money, but in engagement too, in people's lives, it is such a waste. Uh, and so, you know, how do we change that equation, right? Um, to, you know, for people to feel it's, it's, Hey, I show up and I, and I, it's a, it's a, it's a creative experience, right? It's, we're creating something together that's, that's different. And that, um, has its, you know, well-being benefits. People feel included, connected, and it also has its actual, right? Business benefits too, that are huge as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and and I'm glad you brought up the wellness benefits because, you know, apart from the waste of effort and resources in that sort of self-preservation mindset, it's not a healthy place to live, to be spending a significant period of your day having this low index concern that someone is going to get angry at you or something's going to drop out and you'll be punished for it. And it makes me think about, there's a passage in 1984 where uh, Orwell is describing the dystopian setting that people are living in. And it's describing Winston Smith, the main character's sense that something in his bones told him that at some point things had not always been like this. There was a deep conviction that surely there's a better way to live than the way that we're doing it right now. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, as as the two of you have described, 
some early interest in the work that you're doing, I think a lot of that stems directly from a collective awareness. And I think the pandemic has helped to prompt this forward that there surely is a better way for us to approach our work and our lives than what we've been experiencing over the past, you know, decades, hundred years or more. And as you've been delving into this work, you've talked about some of the, you know, early fruits uh, that you've discovered as you've sort of made this this shift towards pursuing the work of Brave Corps. Yeah. So, you know, we we look at this body of work um, from a holistic standpoint. A lot of the thought leaders out there have one concept that they tackle, and while that material may be helpful insights, you know, to kind of integrate into your work life, we really don't see this kind of universal holistic approach that people could use as, as far as patterns that lead to co-creation. Um, we, we have a set of meta principles that have been tested over the last five years, which we've been able to test out in some of the work environments we've been a part of. One example is turn pain into power. I had this nurse uh, that worked at one of the healthcare facilities I was at, and she had just lost her son. This was 2019. She lost her son um, unexpectedly. He had some rare disease. Uh, I don't even know if the doctors could really pinpoint, you know, what happened. But he he had flu-like symptoms. This was pre-COVID. Um, and he ended up getting hospitalized and he ended up dying and he was 10 years old at the time I had a son at the same age. So it really hit home. We gave her a lot of space and time to kind of mourn and, and just process this life altering, um, situation she's going through her and her family. I guess her husband went into deep, uh, depression and they both weren't working. And so after about an eight to 10 month period, she finally was brave enough to show up at work. She knew that she had to provide for her family or be a part of that. And so I sat down with her and, you know, it's, it's kind of taboo to talk about death and, and things that are, you know, more of a spiritual nature and things along those lines. We didn't get into religion or anything, but, you know, I think as, as humans, we avoid these difficult conversations. And I just felt inspired that I needed to talk to her about this principle about turning pain into power. And I basically laid out the roadmap. I said, look, you have two options. You can, you can become bitter through this experience or you can get better. And in our book, we were trying to articulate what this principle does as a function. We're looking to, um, we want to re-engineer this, this notion of pain, right? The sense of loss. And so if you flip the script, you know, the focus is on gains, not loss and loss leads to sadness and sadness could turn into anger. And so I kind of, I mapped this out on a, on a, on a piece of scratch paper. The alternative to that is to focus on the gains. If you wake up each day and you're just confronted with that loss that you felt and emptiness that you felt the day before, you know, um, you have to reframe your approach to your daily life 
And so I kind of walked her through that. This is how you turn pain into power. And she's like, may I keep this? And then uh, about a week later, I saw her again. And she goes, hey, I want to tell you this. Our chat that we had the other day was super helpful. She goes, I actually framed your scratch paper. It's hanging on my wall. But these are the, the type of directional principles that people need in their lives. We all do, right? I mean, the conventional wisdom says no pain, no gain. Right. So one would be led to believe that we have to walk around and carry our burdens with us wherever we go. It's part of our growth. But a re a proper reframing of that is how can we convert, you know, our painful experiences into something truly powerful that can fuel the future of our lives? So that's just one example. Another is uh define the situation. For a year, uh my team at work, we that was our theme. You know, um, the alternative is situations define you. So from a customer service standpoint, if, you know, people are complaining about X, Y, and Z, and they're doing it repeatedly, you know, the situation is starting to define us. That could turn into a negative Yelp review. It could turn into, you know, this um, untrusting feeling between patients, their families, and, and our staff. And so the mantra was define the situation, right? So if something is broken, let's fix it. Let's, let's, let's really tackle the, the hard things. Let's take action early and often. And so if we are in the driver's seat and trying to make a difference, and, and the acronym is DTS, you know, define the situation. So a lot of times my staff would come to me and they're like, sharing a challenge or a problem. They're like, and then they realize it in the same breath of sentence. They're like, you know what? We just need a DTS. And they walked away already starting to shape the solution. And they start to, you know, um, collaborate with their coworkers and, and it's a beautiful principle, but this notion of meta principles is, is something different. Stephen Covey had a set of principles. They, you know, they were prescriptive, Meta principles, you zoom out uh, a bit further, right? And so a meta principle, like lead with a question, for example, it's directional. What questions do you need to ask is what you yourself needs to populate. Define the situation. It's directional. It doesn't tell you what actions to take. It just points out the fact that you need to take action, right? Turn pain into power means it's a paradigm shift. How can you shift from being the victim to being passionate about your future, right? So we're, we're hopeful that these meta principles and patterns really, you know, if, if you turn back to them time and time again, you're able to achieve co-creation with others. And so that is our hope in, in this work. That's the mission. And we're excited. You know, as Ian said, these meta principles are, are building blocks, right? These are, these are the tools to build your principles, right? For you, for your family, for your culture, uh, your, your experience. I, that's what I would hope for any, any person, right? And that it's done in a co-creative way. This is unusual, right? Most, most, most of what we have is, Hey, if it's team building, it's, you know, it's a virtual offsite or a, a happy hours or whatever people do. Um, 
you know, that, that's infusing the art, right? So the, the creative uh, side, um, but creating context, right? Where we say, hey, this is who we are, right? And, it, and it, it's fundamental. And, and then it's also something, say, different, but inspiring, right? Uh, so I think people to get truly inspired, right? And we need people, we need each of us to hope again, right? We all have pain. We've all been through a lot, Right. And as and, and the news, you know, it's not uh, you know, we're not going to be freed from the fact that there's going to be some, you know, something happening in the world. Right. That's going to be distressing and challenging. Right. Pick a day, pick a week, pick a month. Um, I think we have dealt with a lot of change. That's not the question. Right. Um, I think the question is going to be, how are we going to build a future that has not been built for? through the through the co-creative muscles right the exercise of those co-creative muscles you build something that becomes special and it's because of the process because it just works and how many industries how many companies you know uh need this well everyone right and how many are doing it uh in all its simple simple glory right um why wait right why wait till you're creating a startup if you are or why wait till you're just you're in the zone and your hobby is carved out a couple hours a day. Why not all through the day? Why not? Why not during those meetings, right? That would otherwise be one to one directional, right? Download meetings. Why not turn it into something else? A conversation that is co that is truly co creative. We've seen this happen. We've been part of these uh, in tech companies, and believe me, right? It turns training on its head. It's like people don't want to be in a training, right? They don't want to sit there. And, you know, those things get scores of seven out of 10. And you're like, well, that's a C, right? Because it feels like a C, right? You have co-creative conversations, that's a nine or 10 out of 10, right? Because people feel it's what they want. It's what they truly need. Yeah. Hmm. You know, one of the reasons why we're setting out to do this podcast is twofold. You know, we want to share this this notion of co-creation with others because we've had this intimate experience ourselves, but it's not an academic or educational podcast. We're not going to sit here and describe how each of these things work. If you just follow this, it's going to lead to that. That's not what this podcast is about. What it is about is, is this notion of having co-creative conversations right and and it's it could be a template of of how to do co-creation an example of co-creation right we're excited to have a bunch of different guests that are misfits in their own right in their own experience um in their own past they've they've been misfits they felt out of place but they've done some pretty cool things that maybe their story hasn't been told we want to explore those things we we remain curious to learn from others and I think um, if the one thing that we could glean from this podcast, it's it's a state of openness. We remain open. There's no scripts. Sure, we'll have directional themes that we want to explore, but the magic is really like, what can we synthesize together as we chat about something, uh, as we ask deeper questions, as people give their insights, their personal insights? It's a sharing of wisdom. And it's, it's, it's having this framework of deep empathy. How can we understand and learn from one another? Right. And we're excited to 
kind of set off on this journey to to have these conversations and and to hopefully inspire those along the way. Hmm. For people that are curious, right? Why lead with the question? Why lead with the question podcast, right? Why would you center uh, you know, the focus on that? Well, interestingly, we, we asked, um, you know, Ed Catmull, what's his leadership philosophy? And he essentially took all of that work of the book, Creativity Inc., and distilled it down to one statement. He said, I lead with the question, right? And he shared that, you know, when he started and he, and he was a leader there, it was like, and he's a PhD, he's a smart guy, right? He's created like technology and software that's changed the world or you know, the world of entertainment and influenced and inspired a lot of people. It was easy, he said, for him to have answers. So people would come to him and was just spouting off answers. But he said, I wasn't empowering anybody. And he went on a meditation retreat. You know, uh, his wife said, hey, you got to do this. He went, you know, and it's like seven days of just ask questions and listen. And he was like, I was losing my mind. Like two, three days into it, I'm ready to quit. I'm done, right? And yet he stayed the course, right? And what he found was, that changed his life. And something as simple as questions changing our lives, well, how do they do that? We have to let them sink in and become an anchoring force for our future. And how do we do that? Well, we lead with them. We lead ourselves with questions, right? And they have anchoring power that answers don't have, right? Think about it. You know, if we ask ourselves, if we say to ourselves, hey, do this and just try to carry that statement with you, for a day or two or a week or a month or a year, it's going to fade pretty fast. But if you pose a question to yourself, I mean, we talk about perpetual motion machines being impossible to create in science, but actually you can create one that way. You want a perpetual motion machine, energy creation, right? Fuel for your future. Well, get these anchoring questions in place. Harness the power of questions in your leadership and your influence and your work, wherever you are, right? Uh, you know, with kids, with your loved ones, with friends, and just watch, you know, what, what happens. It's really amazing. This episode of Lead with a Question was produced and hosted by me, Rob Callen, along with co-hosts and co-founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. Ian also wrote our theme music, you can learn more about the work we're doing at BraveCore by visiting our website, bravecore.co. That's B-R-A-V-E-C-O-R-E dot C-O. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us a note at bravecore.co forward slash contact. This has been a production of BraveCore LLC. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.